Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, awesome video, isn't it? Yeah, we used that for the, uh, the, Christ, the Christmas Eve services last night, and it was just too good. Wanted to make sure we used it uh, this morning as well. Uh, before we get into our text, I did want to warn you, uh, the message is not going to be about the birth of Jesus because that was so yesterday. Um, we're actually going to be wrapping up our, series, our entire year series on the life of Jesus. The text today is going to deal with, well, what comes next, and that's the anticipated return of Jesus. He came once uh, to save the world. He will come a second time to judge the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Not the judgment aspect per se, but the return of Jesus. I also want to say a very special good morning and a very Merry Christmas to those who are joining with us on our live stream today. We're so glad that you're a part of the Oak Park family. So thank you for making our time of worship together a part of your family celebration. And here's what I'm asking of you today. If by chance for Christmas you received some of those uh, gaudy matching Christmas pajamas, please take a pic and send them in. You can send in the pic to 805-481-7092. Of course, you can also text in things like prayer praises or prayer requests for the day, and the church family will be praying for you as well. If you've never texted in before, we would love to get a name uh, with the number so that we best know how to pray for you and contact you to follow up and see how we can help you grow in your faith, grow closer to the Lord Jesus. But once again, welcome. We're glad you're a part of our celebration today. All right, would you please stand as God's Word is read this morning. On this important subject, we actually have two passages. The first is from the book of Acts, and the second will be from the book of 1 Thessalonians. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. That's a key point, remember that one. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And then from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word today with hearing, with understanding. Lord, may our, not only our minds be informed, but may our hearts be transformed and may our wills be conformed to your truth. Lord, may the truth of your word speak deeply into our hearts to assure us of not only the truthfulness, but the reality, the impending reality of our union with you, whether it be in the air or whether it be after our days are completed here. Father God, I ask for the work of your spirit among those who are gathered here in this place, those who are watching now, those who will watch later online. I pray for the work of your spirit to bring your truth to bear on each of our individual lives. For those of us who may doubt, I pray for words of conviction and assurance. Lord, for those who disbelieve, I pray, Lord, for a convincing proof to be made present and to press into their heart and into their mind of the power of your resurrection and your imminent return. Lord, for those of us who are just discouraged at this holiday season with so much focus on joy and cheer and laughter and family, and it's also, Lord, a time very, very difficult for far too many of us. Lord, I pray and I ask for a direct work of your Holy Spirit to bring cheer, joyfulness, encouragement, a renewed sense of hope into each life of those who listen to your word. Lord, for some of us, perhaps we're just kind of grown weary. We've been waiting a long time. And Lord, we want, we want that return to come, to rescue us, to redeem us, to release us. Lord, I pray for a spirit that will encourage us to wait upon the Lord. Give courage to our hearts, Lord, as we still have work to do here. As always, Father God, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to speak, to work, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus, your Son, our Savior, our Lord is lifted up, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We'll have a little bit of a quicker, a little bit of a shorter um, message today since it's um, uh, Christmas and some of the, the kids are in with us today as well. This entire year we've spent diving deeply into the life, the ministry, the teaching, the mission of Jesus. 52 weeks, today we culminate that. And we culminate that with the very last subject, so to speak, of the life of Jesus. That is his return. You know, there were more than 300 prophecies in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. More than 300 prophecies that told us the Messiah was coming. 
It was about his birth. It was about his life, his ministry, his death. Jesus fulfilled all of those. 300 prophecies from Genesis to the book of Malachi, including the very last words of the last pre-Jesus prophet, Malachi, is a messianic prophecy. Begins in Genesis chapter 3. The texts are woven throughout every book, almost of the Old Testament, and it culminates with the prophet Malachi saying the Messiah will come. 400 years after Malachi, the Messiah did come. His name was Jesus. And all of those prophecies were fulfilled. Those prophecies were interwoven into texts in the course of almost 2,000 years. When God works a plan, it has great detail, and God has great patience to work out that plan. But Jesus was the culmination of that plan. After Jesus was born and after he lived, after he ministered, he preached, he taught, he healed, he died on a cross for human sin, he rose from the dead. Forty days later, he ascended into heaven permanently to take his place at the right hand of God the Father to reign and to rule over this rebellious creation, to subdue it, to conquer not in military terms, but to conquer through love, through service, through sacrifice, through hope. You see, the greatest work of God is not the submission of a foreign army. The greatest work of God is the work of the Holy Spirit submitting an individual human heart because the human heart is the most unconquerable enemy there is. Nations rise and fall but the human heart remains steadfast in its defiance of God's rule. As we transition into the teachings of Jesus and the writings of those who believed in him and served him, the New Testament, every book in the New Testament except for the very short letter of 3 John and then the book of Philemon make a reference to the impending return of Jesus. 25 out of 27 and the authors of those two letters, the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul, talk extensively about the return of Christ in their other writings. The return of Jesus is affirmed by Jesus himself. Each of the four Gospels talk about the return, Jesus talking about his return. The angels, as we read in the book of Acts, say that Jesus is coming back. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, a man named James, who was one of the younger half-brothers of Jesus, who became a believer in his brother being the Son of God who died for his sins and rose from the dead and became a leader in the church of Jerusalem. James was then subsequently executed for his faith in his older brother as Savior. One of Jesus' other younger brothers, Jude, also became a believer and became a leader in the early church. We have a letter in the New Testament written by him as well. The author of Hebrews makes one of the clearest and one of the strongest statements that Jesus will return. It's all throughout the New Testament. So we can have the utmost confidence and certainty that Jesus will return, even though it's been 2,000 years. Sometimes it is a struggle. How many times have you prayed, oh, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Today would be great especially right before the midterm or the final, right? 
If you made it through college without praying that prayer, you are a spiritual giant. And I need to learn your secret. So many times in my life of facing a very daunting or a very difficult task, I've uttered the prayer either aloud or at least within my heart of hearts, Jesus, now would be a really good time. Anytime, you can come. Save me from this, please. Jesus usually says, not that I have ever heard an audible voice of Jesus, but Jesus usually says something like this, at least that's the way my heart and mind interpret it. This is going to be hard, but it's going to be good for you. Reminds me of some things I've said as a parent. You know, some of the earliest Christians... The very first, within a couple of decades, Christians were already struggling because Jesus hadn't returned. We write that the Apostle Paul writes about that in 2 Thessalonians. The Apostle Peter writes about it in 2 Peter. Within a few decades, the people were expecting Jesus to return so quickly. And all of a sudden, it had been 10 years, 15 years, 20, 25 years. Some Christians had died, and that created questions from the text we read in 1 Thessalonians. Others were like, why is this taking so long? But they had forgotten that Jesus gave marching orders. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus can return at any time, but the ends of the earth were not reached within the first century. Some of the Christians struggled, so we can empathize with them and sympathize with them as well. The return of Christ is a core Christian doctrine. There's, however, a huge difference in how modern Christians view the return of Jesus compared to the majority of those in the first few centuries. The imminent return of Christ empowered the first Christians to live and to preach boldly. For us, we're viewing the return of Christ more as an escape or as an end rather than as an impetus to mission. The return of Jesus is our call to engage the darkness, to preach the gospel to the world, to live faithfully for Jesus, to do good, we, good works among the pagans, as the scriptures say, so that they may glorify the Father. The imminent return of Jesus is to motivate us to engage, not for us to look forward to, to escape. See, our focus on the second coming must be the same as his first coming. I love the way missionary E. Stanley Jones put it, so so succinct and so powerful. The early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight, look what has come to the world. Do you see the difference? And I say, I've prayed that prayer to escape, to be delivered, to be set free from the chaos of surrounding culture. But the return of Jesus is our motivation to continue to preach, continue to live, continue to serve, continue to give, continue to strive so that Jesus will be glorified and more people will be in eternity with us. 
His return is so anticipated. Jesus was very clear about certain signs that needed to happen before he would return. And people get very caught up on those. There was only one requirement, though, that Jesus actually laid out in the Scriptures. It's Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. The wording all nations is the, the, the language most literally, Thai ethne, will be preached to all ethnicities. You see, there's only one race, the human race. That's why racism is just so ridiculous. We're all one race. Now, we have ethnic distinctions. We have cultural distinctions, yes. But humanity is one. And the gospel is for all humanity. It is for the human race. But every ethnicity, every culture, every people group needs to know and hear the gospel. That was one of the requirements Jesus laid out. Now, there's various ways to interpret that. But here's the really cool, exciting news. People have been studying this stuff for like hundreds of years, and, and especially in the last number of last 30 to 40 years, between you know, modern technology and greater reporting and the internet and all these wonderful things, where the missiologists are now able to categorize and to, to calculate how many people groups there actually are, down to the different languages even tribes speak in various parts of the world. And the, the tribes that have similar dialects and very distinct dialects and all of that, they've been able to, to categorize them and to name them and to number them and everything. And here's the really incredible truth. There are efforts to translate the gospel, just the simplest message of Jesus, into every single major language group so that it will be heard, readable, and understood in virtually every dialect. There'll be a few exceptions because there's unique dialects, just, you know, like from mountain to mountain or village to village. But the, the missiologists say that we are closing in on a portion of the gospel message being translated and printed and available for almost every single Ta ethne on this planet. It will happen in the next few years. And it's not necessarily that Jesus is going to be that strict or that literal. But if he is, it's within our grasp. So yes, the, G, the return of Jesus could be more imminent than ever. Regarding those signs that some people fixate on so much, the signs are actually rather generic. They, they apply to any and every generation. They always have. They always will. It's the human condition. Earthquakes and wars and famines and rumors of war and everything else. Jesus used those to serve as constant motivation for the mission and to pursue maturity. When you get wrapped up looking for signs and trying to set a timetable, it's not the way to go. My major professor in seminary was Dr. Robert Lowry. Passed away a number of years ago. Still miss him quite a bit. Man of great wisdom. This is uh, from one of his writings. The signs associated with Christ's coming must never be viewed as history in advance so that Christians can predict when Christ will come. 
Such signs as the preaching of the gospel, earthquakes and wars and persecution of Christians have been present throughout the history of the church. Indeed, in her major passages where signs are given, the call is for vigilance and faithfulness. So we must not get wrapped up must not be obsessing about times and schedules and singular events denoting specific signs that were given. Jesus discouraged such speculation. And it's just my opinion, so if this is worded too strongly, please extend grace. But those who write and preach extensively or exclusively on this topic are most often fearmongers or profiteers. And in my early days as a follower of Jesus, I was right there adding to, adding to their profits. Bought the books, you know, sucked all that stuff up, you know. 1980, countdown to Armageddon. Yeah, I had the book, you know. Didn't graduate until 1985, so I was very concerned that Jesus might return, you know, too early in my life for certain things. But we can't obsess about the timing Jesus, when he was telling his disciples, Jesus said that even he, as the Son of God, fully God in the flesh, even he, as the Son of God, did not know the Father's timing. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known on what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus uses his own unknowingness as our template He rested and trusted in the timing of God the Father. It's the same thing he told the disciples right before his ascension. It's not for you to worry about the Father's timing. Just do what the Father tells you to do. Be watchful, be waiting, be faithful. There's two important points on this supplemental subject, and this is where I'm probably gonna get myself in a lot of trouble with some people. When there's so much focus on the end times and things like that, especially with where our, where our society and our culture is going right now, and I mean, things are, things are escalating at a ridiculous pace. Our culture is crumbling, and the idiocy of the news feeds just continues to increase every day. So people naturally think, okay, it's the, the end of America is the end of the world. Those two things are not equal. The modern concept of the end times that involves such things as tribulation and rapture and all these other terminologies, particularly where it comes to the rapture as envisioned, where Christians are snatched away, they are caught up, they are taken out of the world as the world crumbles into more and more chaos. That is false doctrine. It is not accurate scripture. It has not been the position or the theology of the church for the first 1,800 years. It wasn't devised until the 1,800s in Britain, and then it came to America. So the rapture, as popularly understood, is false doctrine. Now, there will be a rapture. Rapture just simply means to steal away or to snatch away. And it's from our passage in 1 Thessalonians. When Jesus comes back, 
those Christians who are alive, yes, will be caught up with Jesus in the air to meet Jesus and those who are, those especially the angel armies who are coming with him as they are coming back to earth. For Christians, it seems to be a, re, a round trip, up and down. Maybe there's probably a quick change in the sky, battle armor on, whatever it is, because when Jesus returns, it's game over. That's the end. That's the consummation of human history. That's the rapture. It happens simultaneously at the end. And one last point on this, the book of Revelation, while fascinating and obviously very mysterious and controversial, we've got to remember the book of Revelation was written to Christians in the first century. It was written to encourage them, to inspire them, to fortify them, to educate them. Now, since it's the Word of God, even though it was written to Christians in the first century, as all of the books of the New Testament are, they're applicable to us because truth transcends time. But Revelation was not meant to be a roadmap or a checklist of events. Revelation was a reinterpretation of reality, a spiritual reality behind what we see as reality. The war between God and Satan, good and evil. The movement of, of God's hand and the timing, the raising up of nations and the, fall, the, 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 the pushing down of nations. The coming of Jesus. The things that will precede the final ultimate end. As such, the thing about Revelation so amazing is every single generation who has lived since it was written has believed it was written to them. And we're no exception. We think we're in there. We may be. We're probably not. But we may be. It's written, it's, it's, it's so beautifully worded, and its imagery is so powerful. It applies to every generation of Christians. And if the Lord tarries, which means the return of the Lord may be, may be today, it may be tomorrow, it may be another 2,000 years. Remember, God works out his plan and his timing. With the Lord, a 1,000 years is but a day. If the Lord tarries, the book of Revelation will speak to the generation that follows us and the generation that follows them, and so on and so forth. So what do we do? As we eagerly anticipate, as we try to create an expectation, because as Jesus says, it's going to come in an hour and you don't expect it. We're very distracted. We don't expect Jesus to come. We want him to come, but how can we expect him? So be expectant. I remember the first time as I started getting into church and going, my family was not from a Christian background, but I started going to Sunday school as a, as a younger kid. And I remember hearing about the return of Jesus. I was so freaked out. I went home after Sunday school. And I says, Mom, where's the vacuum? We got to clean up the house because Jesus is coming. <laughs> My mom just looked at me and said, it's in the closet. Get to work. <laughs> mom was not a believer, but she was happy for the labor that she did not have to give me my allowance for. And as I vacuumed, I was cleaning the windows, I was getting everything ready because Jesus was coming back. But be expectant. Have your house ready for company, metaphorically speaking. Be faithful. Jesus said, he who is faithful and stands firm to the end will be saved.
We're in a battle. We are in a war. And there's the resources from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the fellowship of Christians and truth and everything else. But we are got, we've got to stand firm to the end. Know there will be opposition and adversity. Be fruitful. Paul in the book of Titus says that we are saved for transformative work within us and in the world. So be fruitful in your service of the Lord. Be hopeful. The greatest thing we have in this world is our Christian hope that is confident hope, not wishful hope. And if we articulate and we live in the power of enlivened hope, it will speak to those who are struggling with doubt, despair, and dismay, and discouragement. So be hopeful. Not irritatingly giddy and that kind of stuff. Just be confidently hopeful that God will work it out. Be morally pure, that's what the Apostle John says. Those of us who, who expect and wait for the Lord Jesus' return says, when he returns, we will be pure as he is pure. So let's go ahead and start on that process now. Pursue moral purity. And then, of course, as the book of Revelation ends, let's be prayerful. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, for we eagerly await our Savior from there.